No greater love in John 15, 12 to 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask you to give us a mind to meditate on these words and to understand what true love is. Help us, Father, to focus on these words and to be thoroughly committed to loving one another as you have demonstrated in your word and as our Lord Jesus Christ did by dying and rising again on our behalf. May we have that kind of love toward one another. And we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Our Lord has been emphasizing a few matters in his last discourse with his disciples. This discourse has started in chapter 13 and it continues through 16. And then there is a prayer in John 17. All of this in the last days before he is arrested in John chapter 18. And what has he emphasized? He has emphasized, starting in 1331, that he has to die and be glorified by that. He will depart temporarily. Though they might grieve temporarily, they should not grieve, then will not grieve permanently, even though after he rises from the dead and appears to them, he will appear to them for a period of 40 days, and then he will disappear. He will ascend into heaven and permanently be away from them. So whether he is away temporarily from them or permanently from them, they should not grieve, they should not have any sorrow, but they should maintain love for one another, thereby proving their love for God. And when they do love one another, they will bear fruit and show forth that they truly do belong to God. Loving one another is the way to bear fruit or show with the fruit that we actually belong to God. And the assurance is that this is the way God is with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from beginning to end in our Christian life and until the Lord Jesus returns. And when he does return, all that we experience, all of the trials and persecutions we experience now will be worth it because he said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is for our assurance. This is for our consolation and peace that he is with us now and we will be with him forever when he returns. Keeping that in mind, remember, he goes back and forth with fruit commandments, abiding in Him, being faithful to Him, and also with the assurance that we belong to Him, He is with us, and He will help us through it all. These are the ways in which He goes back and forth. We've come now to a part where 
He's emphasizing the fact that we ought to love one another. And for this message, we'll be in verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13, where he teaches us to follow his commandment, obey his commandment, and this even to the extent that we lay down our lives for one another, just as he did. And this is the ultimate way to demonstrate love. Okay, verse 12. This is my commandment. And then what is it? That you love one another. This is what I'm talking about, that we love one another. And how so? Just as I have loved you, just as Christ loved us throughout his life, and even ultimately by dying for us, this is the kind of love we should have for one another. And the principle is a universal principle of life. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. We do that. We see that in daily life. Even unbelievers do that for one another. They lay down their lives for their friends. Now, if that's the case in regular daily life among the world, the people of the world, how much more is that true of us? that we ought to have this kind of dedicated love for one another that we lay down our lives for one another. And even, he's talking about physical life. He doesn't mean it in any kind of hyperbolic, figurative way. He's not talking about that here. He's talking about it in a literal way, even to die for each other. How in the world are we able to do this? How can we do this? First, he calls it, verse 12, my commandment. Why is this the commandment of Christ? Why is it the commandment of Christ? In 1510, and notice it's in the singular in our verse, verse 12, 1510, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. The one commandment he wants us to, to focus on is love for one another. In verse 10, the commandments of Christ, that is the Ten Commandments and all others implied by the Ten Commandments, are the commandments of Christ. But whether in the plural or in the singular, he says that these are his Father's commandments. Whatever commandments the Father had for Christ to obey, Christ transferred those same commandments To us. They originated with the Father. Jesus Christ obeyed them. He obeyed them and now they belong to Him. They can be called His commandments, my commandments, or my commandment, the singular love one another commandment. And now these belong to us. They originated with the Father through the Son and now they belong to us. Now we are under these commandments or the one commandment. In 1431... 1431, he says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. He loves the Father, and the Father gave him commandment, and he obeys that commandment. That commandment he obeys, he expects us, we who are the disciples of Christ, to do the same. Back in chapter 13, 1334, 
to 35. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the commandment, the single commandment to love one another. It's called a new commandment in two ways. One, Christ exemplifies it because he says in 1334, even as I have loved you. That's the same as what he said in 1512, just as I have loved you. It's also new in that the new man practices this. The new man with the new heart, the believer in Christ who has been born again, he is the one that practices this with his new heart and new life. It's new and fresh to him that he has a new community, the local church or the universal church, to love them. He is dedicated to that kind of love. And 13, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of, this, out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved his own and he loved them to the end. He loved them throughout his life and he loved them even to the end of his life to the very end of God's purposes, which included his own death. That's the kind of love he had. So it's his commandment in that it came from the Father, he obeyed it, he obeyed it, and then expects us also to obey it. More on the commandment. 15.12, he says, This is my commandment. A commandment is not a recommendation. It's not a personal preference. It's not a personality trait. A commandment is something that is our obligation. If the command came from God the Father and through His Son, it's something that we must take solemnly. We must receive it with fear and trembling. We must understand, well, what is this commandment? What are the implications of this commandment? Because it is now my responsibility to obey this commandment. It's a commandment. A command. Everyone knows what a command is. And that's what we are obligated to perform. We noticed that it's in the singular also. In our verse, verse 12, it's in the singular just like it is in 1334, it's in the singular. Why is it in the singular here, but then in the plural in verse 10? In verse 10, he says, 1510, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In 1415, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 14.21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Why this 
alternation between plural and singular? Well, the plural has reference to the Ten Commandments, the law of Christ, the law of liberty. That's the plural, the Ten Commandments. And when we say Ten Commandments, even then, we are summarizing all of the commandments of God, whether in the Old or New Testament, whatever commandments is in the apostolic doctrine from the Old and New Testaments, they are included either explicitly or implicitly in the Ten Commandments. That's why it's in the plural, commandments. But then, when he changes to the singular, such as in John 15, 12 to 17, or John 13, 34, and in other places in Scripture, when it's in the singular, it's in the singular because the ultimate commandment is to love one another. And if we were focused on that commandment, how to love one another, then we would be following the Ten Commandments. Even following the commandments of worshiping the only true and living God, not taking God's name in vain, not worshiping idols, remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If we had the love of one another as our focus, then all the other ones would be kept if we love one another. We'll see more of that in a moment. That's why it is in the singular to love one another. Keep our place here and turn to the book of John. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. John the Apostle wrote the book of John and these three letters called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And as the Apostle who wrote all of these books of the Bible, and by the way, he wrote the book of Revelation also. This John the Apostle, one of the 12 Apostles, his letters are practically an exposition of the book of John. His letters are an exposition or sermons, if we might call them that. They are sermons or explanations commentaries on the book of John. So, if we look at his letters that way, 1 John 2, verse 3, 3 to 6, verses 3 to 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Is it singular or plural? It's plural. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Plural also, verse 4. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked, as Christ walked on the earth. By walking, He means how he lived his life, how he conducted his life. So that's why it's in the plural, because however Christ lived in the world, those are the commandments we ought to follow. However he taught in the world, those are the commandments we are to follow, which includes the Ten Commandments and other things implied by the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's in the plural, the commandments. Now, the singular, the one commandment. 
verse 7. 1 John 2, 7 to 11. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now he turns his attention to the singular commandment. This singular commandment is just like John 15, 12 and 13, 34 to 35. The singular commandment to love one another. This is the way that we show that we are in the true light. We are walking in the light. We are walking as Christ walked. But if we hate our brothers, we're showing the opposite. We're not following the commandment to love our brother. Back to John 15. John 15, he says, he tells us what this one commandment is in the very verse, very sentence. This is my commandment, that you love one another. That you love one another. This commandment is not a very difficult one to understand. We're not talking about Science. We're not talking about the. We're not talking about chemicals. We're not talking about engineering. We're not talking about computer science. We're not talking about anything that's difficult with long and big words. We're not talking about medicine. Correct. These professions, even car repair, they use big words. But here he's not using big words. He's using simple words that you love one another. Even small children understand these words. Love one another. That you love one another. There's nothing complicated in it. It's very understandable, very clear. If that's the case, then why is it so difficult to do? It's one thing if a doctor, a medical doctor, starts rattling off words and names of diseases and we, we say, wait, wait, wait a minute, I'm lost. I have no clue about what you're saying. Back up. Can you say it in more simple words? Can you use a simple common everyday word to describe my disease instead of using the Latin words that have many syllables? Right? We need him to back up and slow down. And the same with many other professions in the world. We need people to back up and slow down. In this case, we don't need that. And yet, it is so stunning that though these words are so simple and clear... There's few people who actually want to do it and know what it means to do it. They know the meaning of the words in terms of their bare understanding, their bare meaning. But in terms of their implication, how it is carried out in life, there is much confusion and much disobedience. There's much confusion and disobedience. 
First, on the matter of confusion, why is there much confusion? Because we let the world determine what love means. We let the world determine what it means to obey this commandment. Instead of letting the scripture define it for us, we let the world define it for us. And when we do that, it's going to end up confused, distorted, polluted, perverted. That's the way the love would be if we let the world, because the world is controlled by the flesh and the devil. We no longer belong to the world. We belong to Christ. We are his children. We are his followers. We are his disciples. We are the church, the sheep, his beloved. That's who we are. So we should have his definition of love, the Bible's definition of love, not the world's definition. And this is a lifelong process because we have been taught, we have been bombarded, we have even steeped, been steeped into that worldview for such a long time in our life. Most of us, especially if we were converted as adults, we have been steeped into that perverted worldview for a long, long time. And now, after our conversion, it's incumbent upon us. It's our obligation to overcome what they think, what we used to think, and to think the way God thinks on the subject, to avoid that confusion. And then the matter of disobedience. Why is there disobedience? There is disobedience among Christians, professing Christians, because they are ignorant of the Word of God. In some cases, it's um, willful ignorance. In other cases, it's unwillful. But in both cases, the Christian, the professing Christian, has no excuse because he's got a Bible in his hand. The Bible is in his house. The Bible is on his phone, his smartphone. The Bible is on his computer. The Bible is on the internet. In that sense, he has no excuse for not reading the Bible from cover to cover. No excuse whatsoever. So, that disobedience cannot come from willful ignorance. It should not come that way. And even worse, the ignorance of what it means to love one another should not come because we want our sin. If we want our sin, we don't want to give up and repent of sin, we cannot have a definition of love that's distorted and perverted contrary to the Bible. We must hate sin and love the way God loves. So, having said that, how is it that we should love one another? How should we, according to the Scripture, love one another? Another. Well, let's go to the first place in the Bible where this commandment is found, at least in these explicit words. That is in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Leviticus 19.18 is the first place in the Scripture where we have these words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18. However, let's read 19.9 and go from 19.9 to 18 for examples 
on how to love our neighbor. For examples on it. 19.9 Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. And you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. If we love our neighbor as ourself, firstly notice, as ourself, as ourselves, right? We naturally don't steal from ourselves. We naturally would not, if we were blind, put a stumbling block in front of our path so that we trip and fall and get injured. And then if somebody sees us, have people laugh at us, right? We don't naturally do that to ourselves. We don't love ourselves that way. We do the opposite. So, if we naturally love ourselves in the right way, not in the sinful way, but in the right way, Notice here in verses 9 and 10, we leave work for the needy and the stranger to work so that they earn a living. We don't give them money freely or tax money freely. We have them work in the field, to glean in the field. Verse 11, we don't steal from each other. We don't deal falsely with each other. Dealing falsely, that, that is in business dealings. Um, being, being deceptive in business. Or lying to one another. If we lie to each other, we're not loving each other. We don't swear falsely in the name of God. Because why do people swear falsely in the name of God, in the name of the Lord? They do that in order to manipulate the other person to get their way. Well, that's not loving your neighbor. If you're using God's name in vain and you're manipulating somebody else, then that's swearing falsely and harming another. Oppressing each other, robbing each other, the wages of a hired man remaining. When the laborer wants his wage and you withhold that, then you are harming him. Verse 14, cursing a deaf man, putting a stumbling block in front of a blind man. These are ways in which we mistreat other people. We should never do anything like that. No injustice in judgment. We cannot be partial to poor people, nor be partial to rich people. 
We have to be fair-minded, objective, just, as he says here. Judge your neighbor fairly. Don't slander each other and don't murder each other. Act against the life of your neighbor. Don't slander and don't murder each other. Don't hate each other. Verse 17. We may surely reprove our neighbor, but not, but not incur sin because of him. We can't hate each other, but we can reprove or rebuke each other. If somebody is sinning, then it's loving to reprove him. But when you reprove him, make sure you don't incur sin. Don't reprove in the wrong way. Don't rebuke in the wrong way. If we discipline somebody else in the wrong way, then that's sin on us. We're correcting someone else's sin while we're sinning. And that's not good, he's saying. Don't take vengeance and don't bear a grudge. This is the context of love your neighbor as yourself. These are just a few of the illustrations in this context. To love our neighbor as ourselves. This is generally speaking. So that's one level of how we love our neighbor as ourselves. Generally speaking, in day-to-day life, in these many kinds of scenarios. But let's become more specific. More specific, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 to 30. 5, 25 to 30. This is in the middle of an exhortation to wives and husbands. 5.25 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's speaking there of the husband loving his wife so much that he is willing to die for her. Correct? Willing to die for her. And, meantime, he presents her with the word as spotless and blameless, or holy and blameless. This is his work of teaching her the word so that she might become more and more pure and holy. No spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. This is the way he loves her too, by teaching her the word. Then, in 28 and 29, we find our commandment, the commandment to love one's neighbor. And who is, in a marriage, who is the closest neighbor that the spouse has? The other spouse. The other spouse. The husband's closest neighbor is his wife. The wife's closest neighbor is her husband. He says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Why should the wife be considered a part of the husband's body? 
because of Genesis 2, 24. The two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2, 24. So whatever the husband does to himself, he's doing to his wife. Whatever he does to his wife, he's doing to himself, according to this verse, verse 28. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Immediately he applies it according to the love your neighbor as yourself commandment. He who loves his wife loves himself. And then, nobody normally and naturally hates his own flesh. Nobody normally, naturally, sanely, unless he's a madman, he doesn't walk around with a ball with sharp objects on it and a whip to whip his own back and hit himself on the head. He doesn't harm himself. What does he do? He protects himself with clothing to protect from the elements outside, clothing to do that, right? And he's not battering himself with any harmful objects. No one does that. That's the way in which he means we naturally and normally, we nourish and cherish ourselves. We protect ourselves. When we're thirsty, we get water to drink. When we're hungry, we eat food. We don't deprive ourselves. So why should we do wrong things like that to our spouse. We, we shouldn't. And this relates to the example of Christ in the church again. He says, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. Christ does not batter and bruise us, correct? He does not mistreat us. He, is, he does not withhold good from us. He gives us that. So if we love our neighbor as ourselves, or love one another in the Christian life, that application should be first and foremost in the marriage. In the marriage. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. Titus 2, 1 to 5. Where he mentions not only marriage, but also family. Titus chapter 2, 1 to 5. Family and church, for that matter. And we'll specify church also. Titus 2 verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. What should happen in terms of the family? Verses 3 to 5. The older men and women should teach the younger ones, teaching what is good and living by a godly example. Verse 4, to encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Love, love. Love husband, love children, and fulfill their duties in godliness. In verse 5. Sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. This love, then, do we love our families? Then how should we show our love for our families? By practicing these deeds here. This is the way we love one another. What about within the family among siblings? 
within the family among siblings. Brother, brother, sister, brother, sister, two brother, however it works. How should we be in the family? 1 John 3. 1 John 3, 11 to 15. 1 John 3, 11 to 15. 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This message of loving one another has existed from the beginning. In this context, he means from the beginning of time. God taught Adam and Eve to love each other. Adam and Eve taught their children to love each other. So it has existed in the world from the beginning of time, from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapters 2 to 4, or 1 to 4, it has existed. And then he gives the example of Cain, who was of the devil, the evil one. He was a murderer, had murderous thoughts, and then actually did murder his brother, Abel. And that is set as an example of one sibling against another sibling, one brother against another brother, of what is evil and hateful and unloving. That should not happen. It should not happen in any family, especially in a Christian family. Nothing like that whatsoever should occur. But also, what is the implication of this, the way that we love each other as Christians and as Christian families and as Christian churches? What's the implication? Remember the implication in John 13, 35? John 13, 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We're actually affirming or denying our discipleship to Christ by the way we love or hate each other. We are affirming or denying it. All men, all will know we are his disciples if we love each other. They're going to know the difference between a true believer and a false believer. They're going to know the difference. And sometimes they'll tell us the difference between a true Christian and a false Christian. This is what God intends. And not only for them to know that we are disciples of Christ, but to glorify God. Matthew 5.16 Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The goal is not only for them to see our good works, our love for each other, but ultimately to glorify God in heaven. They will glorify God in this life or in the life to come or both. They will. They will certainly in the life to come glorify God. But That often happens even now. And God wants that to happen right now for us to love one another, to glorify Him. If we do love each other, 
in the family and in the local church? How does it look? How does it look to glorify God and to love one another in the local church now? On the level of the local church. The book of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 to 12. Hebrews 6, 9 to 12. 6, verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says here that they have been accomplishing and practicing those things that accompany salvation. And God is mindful of this, the love that is shown toward each other. And how is it summarized? Verse 10. In having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. We do serve the saints. We have served and we are still serving the saints. It's not just in the past, but it persists. It continues. It abides currently still ministering, still serving the saints. And this kind of service to one another is not for certain super-Christians. It's not for some who have zeal and others who have no zeal or less zeal. No, he wants it to be true of all of us. And as good if it's true of all of us. He says in 11, we desire that each one of you, each one of you show the same diligence. Every single one of us should have this kind of zeal, enthusiasm, to serve each other, and the benefit, to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. When we see God's work in us and how much we abound in fruit and love toward one another, it gives us full assurance of hope. It helps us to realize that we are truly a child of God. It gives us this assurance and comfort, the peace that we belong to Him. And through, through faith and patience, we inherit the promises. Not by being sluggish, not by being sluggards, not by being like a slug, a slug that moves about slowly. But we're going to be, we should be diligent, very, very enthusiastic in doing what is right toward one another. If that's the case, what about uh, specifically, how does it look? The book of Galatians. The book of Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14. Galatians 5 verse 14. Let's actually start at 13. 513. 513 to 20. Six. Galatians 
For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The Apostle says in 13 that through love we ought to serve one another and not use our freedom, that is, our forgiveness of sins, our status in Christ, not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. No freedom for the flesh. Freedom for the flesh is not freedom, it's slavery. Slavery to sin. Then 14. Our verse, love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He boils it down to one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when we do love our neighbor as ourself, we will not bite and devour one another and be consumed by each other. No biting, no devouring one another. And how do we bite and devour We bite and devour 19 and following, 19 to 21. Immorality, which is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, endings, drunkenness, carousings. These are ways in which we bite and devour each other. These are ways in which we sin and hate each other instead of loving each other. Also in 26, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Those who boast are practicing arrogance and pride, manifesting itself on the outside, and they envy each other. To boast, to envy, to be jealous of someone else and what he has and desiring to have what the other has. These are sins These are evidences of the lack of love, of hatred toward each other, not love. If we do love, we will reject these sins and many more. This is just a list, a simple short list. 
verse 22. 22 to 23. If we are practicing the fruit of the Spirit, if we are bearing fruit, like John 15, 1 to 8 says, if we are loving one another, what will we do? There will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control among us. These will be the virtues, these will be the fruits of the Spirit manifested among us. The opposite. That's what should happen in churches. These fruits of the Spirit. Okay, well, what about loving the world? Or loving the people in the world? Not loving the world itself, but the people in the world. What about loving them? Does the Bible expect us to love them? Yes, there is a place for that. Since we are in Galatians, turn to Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. While we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Primarily, our obligation is to one another, first in family, then in church. But we also do have an obligation, biblically, to love the people outside of the church, outside in the world. While we have opportunity, we should do good to them. It's not going to be all day long every day because all day long and every day, it's usually with family and church. But when we have opportunity outside, we should. He said so in Galatians 6.10. We have an example of this in the book of Luke. Luke 10, Luke 10, 25 to 37. Luke 10, 25. First, we'll see that there is a lawyer skilled in the law of Moses, who dialogues with Christ, asks him a question. Christ gives him the answer, and that answer is the same answer we are studying now, but then he illustrates the answer. And that illustration is known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, first, the question, 10.25 of the book of Luke. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Hold on here. He asks about eternal life. Christ asks him, what do you think? He, the lawyer, gives the correct answer, which means it was common in the teaching of the Jews to know these two fundamental truths, to love God and to love one's neighbor. And not only that, but that the neighbor issue, the neighbor commandment, was focal, was central to proof whether they loved God. This lawyer knew this. The lawyer knew it. Because Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And the lawyer, knowing this, 
wanted to justify himself and make excuses for the way he treated others. So that's why he says, who is my neighbor? So now he makes it a confusing issue. Those who want to disobey make it confusing. When it's clear, already clear, the lawyer already knew it was clear. Well, Jesus obliges and illustrates it with this parable, the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. We'll see here that we have strangers or a stranger helping a stranger. Okay? Verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. This man who fell among robbers between Jerusalem and Jericho was very likely a Jew because Jews were the ones who populated that region of the country from Jerusalem to Jericho. Most likely he was a Jew. Certainly the priest was a Jew and the Levite was a Jew. They were of the nation of Israel. In this case... We have a helpless man, an innocent man, left for dead on the side of the road. Two of his own countrymen, remember Leviticus 19.18? You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that? The, these two men, the priest and the Levite, who belong to the same nation, the same bloodline, they are not helping somebody, a man, stranded and beaten up and robbed on the roadside. They just walk on the other side as though they don't see him. They're too busy in life to help. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan was a foreigner from the north part. In the northern, northern part, they had some semblance and some knowledge of the religion of the Old Testament. They had some of that, but they were different enough religiously and different enough ethnically that they were foreigners and strangers considered so. And they had animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews from the north and the south. There was animosity, conflicts between them. This Samaritan happens to be traveling on that road. He happens to be traveling on that road. The Samaritan helps the Jew. But the Samaritans are supposed to hate the Jews and the Jews are supposed to hate the Samaritans. The Samaritan helped the Jew. Did they know each other? No. Were they of the same family? No. Were they of, they of the same religion? No. But he had enough common grace, common courtesy, human decency to know this is a man 
who has been uh, robbed. He's innocent. He's desperate. He's on the roadside. I need to help him. So that's one stranger helping another stranger because of common grace. If that should happen because of common grace, and that does happen because of common grace, should that not happen with us, we who have the special, effective, salvific grace of God? Shouldn't it happen to us, we who have sovereign grace? We should be all the more alert to those kinds of incidents to help strangers and show that we are sons of our Father in heaven, which is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. There he illustrated by saying, it's not enough for us to greet those who greet us, just to be friendly with each other. But it's even better and more pleasing in the sight of God for us to greet people who are Gentiles, people who don't like us, people who hate us, to be friendly to them and to greet them, and when needed, to help them. And the standard, therefore, he said. He closed that section by saying, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the love that we should have, even toward outsiders, toward strangers, the people in the world. So, shall we follow this commandment to love one another? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.